Support the Amigos podcast on Patreon or PayPal and receive cool perks and rad swag. Visit our page at everythingamiga.com support. Amiga, the first personal computer that gives you a creative edge. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Amigos. I'm John, and Aaron's not here. Uh, for the very first time in the uh, more than four-year history of the Amigos, uh, Aaron, the Devil Bunny, is not present on an episode of the Amigos. Unfortunately, Aaron has suddenly fallen quite ill. Uh, nothing super serious, just a stomach malady, but he is unable to record However, I would be loath to break the streak of never once having missed a week uh, of Amigos with the exception of uh, Amigathon weeks. And so here I am, alone, in Amigo Studios uh, for the very first time. Uh, just as a, a little bit of trivia for you uh, long-time listeners to Amigos, the last time that this show was recorded with only one host was way back in September 2016, episode 61, the Lotus 3 episode. Uh, that episode was filmed uh, with Aaron Solo, reporting from Amigo Studios East, uh, Mark 1, uh, Aaron's bedroom, with a rock band mic. <laughs> so that was uh, early days, early, early days in the show. In fact, it was only 10 or so episodes after we started uh, videotaping the show at all uh, when we transition from an audio-only endeavor to a, uh, to a video scene as well. Um, and it has been almost two years to the date since we last covered a Dune game on Amigos. Uh, the last uh, episode we covered a Dune game on, which is Dune 1, which I guess is the only other uh, Dune game for the Amiga, uh, was two years ago February 10th, 2018. So it's hard to believe 2018 was two years ago, but it was. And uh, we covered Dune 1 on episode 132. So anyway, uh, I hope you'll join me on this uh, solo journey. Uh, forgive me if I kind of rumble and stumble through some parts. It's, it's a different world. Uh, recording on your own, as anybody who's ever done a one-person show will tell you, uh, when you don't have somebody to bounce uh, bounce off of or look things up while the other person's talking, um, it's it's you you sort of have to uh, you have to be on a different level of of concentration. But hopefully, this will be a fun time for both of us, and um, and of course, Aaron will be back next week uh, for our our next episode. So all that said, let's jump right in to this week's Amiga News. The gamble train has rolled into the station and there is a ton of Amiga news this week. We want to start things off with a very somber story. Uh, Greg Tibbs, the inventor of the Rejuvenator, has passed away. This is reported by Amiga Love, um, who has gotten to know this guy over the years, apparently. And I guess uh, his cousin Herman contacted uh, Mr. Love today and told him the news. Um, this is uh, Greg Tibbs uh, invented the Rejuvenator, uh, and the Rejuvenator is sort of known as the ultimate non-destructive uh, upgrade for the Amiga 1000. Um, there were, in the, in the, still in the heyday of the Amiga, there were several um, internal upgrades made available for the 1000. There was a board called the Phoenix board, which allowed you to uh, upgrade the, the chip RAM. And I think it included something like four different slots for, um, for uh, Kickstart uh, ROMs. So you could switch between any of the four. However, this was a destructive upgrade. You had to sort of, it was a, it was a one-way trip uh, modifying your, your 1000 in this way. And what made the Rejuvenator board different 
is that it was a non-destructive upgrade. It basically just sat inside and atop your, your existing Amiga 1000 board. It gave you the same RAM upgrade. Uh, it allowed you to attach a certain type of flicker fixer and uh, it gave you an additional uh, kickstart slot so uh, you could actually, um, so you wouldn't have to put in the, you, it gave you a kickstart slot so you wouldn't have to load the kickstart disk upon boot like you did with the, uh, the original Amiga 1000. So huge, huge loss for the Amiga community. Uh, you know, uh, our, our condolences go out to the family of, of Greg and, uh, and just it's, it's a sad week for, for the Amiga community at large. Moving on down the line, let's talk about this week's episode of the 10-Minute Amiga Retrocast. Um, this week's episode of 10 Mark Show is kind of, I wouldn't call it a rebuttal, it's just sort of a different way of looking at the Amiga scene in the United States. He calls it the truth about the Amiga in America. And uh, if there's one thing I've learned about being involved in the Amiga community is that nobody's got a corner on the truth. Uh, when you are dealing with the world of uh, vintage computers, uh, there are many different stories and many different angles to approach each way of, of looking at a particular aspect. And it's so nice that we, we are in a community where all these different voices can be heard. Um, a couple months ago, uh, we were on a show produced by Retro Man Cave about the Amiga scene in America. It was uh, me and Aaron and Amiga Bill was on there sort of representing America. Then uh, Ravi and, uh, and Neil uh, were talking about uh, the, the British side. And um, I forgot about Guru Anthony was on there as well, also representing America. So anyway, uh, you know, we, we uh, and by we, I really mean Aaron, because Aaron uh, was actually around in the scene, in the day, and, uh, you know, it's sort of the height, what is recognized as the height of the Amiga in America in the late 80s. You know, I was, I was eight or nine years old, so I was not uh, part of that scene, but um, Aaron was, and, uh, and he basically talked about how you know, the Amiga, it was around, there were people that had it, but it was no, it was no great shakes. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it definitely existed in the, in the shadows of the PC market, which was just, you know, massive. And then even within the shadow of the Macintosh market, which was a fraction of the size of the PC market. Um, now, uh, Doug gives a different take, you know, where he was in, uh, in the United States, uh, there were several Amiga shops around, and there were, uh, you know, lots of lots of different dealers and software developers. He talks about the the range of magazines that were around. He does make the point that in the United States, the Amiga was always thought of as a um, sort of a productivity machine more than a gaming machine. Um, so many of the people that were into playing games in the United States were console people. And the Amiga, at least in Doug's view, was mostly seen as a machine that you could do serious creative work with. So anyway, uh, you know, it's it's always good to hear other viewpoints. Um, the one thing that makes uh, you know talking about uh, you know how popular something was difficult is that there aren't any. 100% concrete sales numbers out there. There just aren't. Um, you know, uh, people have done a lot of detective work and inferring and things to sort of get an idea of how many, um, you know, PCs were sold within this time period, how many Macs, how many Amigas. Um, but what we really just don't know. What we do know is that uh, obviously uh, the Amiga did not sell well enough for Commodore to stay in business in the United States. Uh, and throughout the world. Uh, if the Amiga was selling great and everything was awesome, then Com you know, Commodore would still be around and we'd have three big players in the market instead of just having two, you know, PC and Mac in terms of the hardware thing. So anyway, um, it's, it's, I don't want to say that he, he gives us, a, you know, that he, he's trying to, he's out to, to prove us wrong. I think, or and by us, I mean, you know, me and Aaron, as, as we, we gave our viewpoint during the show, I think it's more that, uh, you know, his 
his perspective was different. And in the days before the internet, uh, you know, perception was reality. What you saw around you was the reality. Uh, if you were surrounded by Amiga magazines and there was an Amiga dealer in your town, you probably thought the Amiga was doing great. And you had no idea that in another part of the country that wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, the most, one of the most populated places in the world, uh, there was no Amiga presence whatsoever. And, uh, and people had already actually forgotten about its existence. So I encourage you to uh, check out both videos, uh, the um, Retro Man Caves video about the Amiga in America, and as well as Doug's 10-minute Amiga Retrocast video. Moving right along. There's a new Amiga event in town. In fact, this is this is not a uh, solely Amiga event, but it's it's featuring the Amiga, and uh, this is a, a European event called Flashback 2020, and this is in the Netherlands in Amsterdam, and this is going down on June 27th and 28th. This thing looks like the event to beat. Um, Ravi turned me on to this yesterday, and he said, check out the guest list here. And if you're watching the video version, I'm going to scroll down here on the page. You can see the four keynote speakers, or sort of the four big names that they've got in here. You've got Billy Mitchell. Of course, he is the famous or infamous, uh, you know, world champion of many video games. Uh, and he was sort of painted to be the villain in the movie The King of Kong. Um, whether or not he's actually a villain is, is somewhat up for dispute, but he was m more recently embroiled in controversy in terms of possibly using an emulator to submit some of his uh, world record scores. Uh, but anyway, surely an interesting person to hear from and talk to. You've got R.J. Michael, who in developed Intuition, uh, which was the Amiga user interface system, what I always thought was called Workbench. Uh, which, you know, there is a subtle distinction there. Um, but uh, anyway, RJ Michael, one of the, the lead software engineers on the Amiga project. And it says he may be bringing friends. Uh, so that's exciting. And he also co-developed the Atari Lynx. Super, super cool system that was way ahead of its time. We've got David Fox. David Fox uh, was the creator of Zack McCracken uh, and uh, Maniac Mansion, Thimbleweed Park. So point and click. LucasArts Adventure Guy. Uh, if you've been listening to the show for a long time, you know that I am a huge fan of the LucasArts games. They are my favorite of all the uh, development houses that were putting these things out. Much better than Sierra, uh, much better than a lot of the, the little guys. These games were super polished. They had great music. They had The, the humor was, was fantastic, which is really hard to do in video games. So uh, I'd love to meet uh, David and talk to him. And finally, Al Lowe. Al Lowe, the creator of the Leisure Suit Larry series, an entirely different sort of adventure game uh, that uh, I, I sort of uh, stumbled upon as a youth probably too early as it came installed on uh, my, my parents' PC. Um, and, uh, and I was able to, uh, to access a whole different world of adventure, if you know what I'm saying, through, uh, through Al Lowe and Leisure Suit Larry. Um, in addition, the 8-bit guy is going to be there. Uh, Dave Haney, just flying around the world, Dave Haney. Uh, Noah Falstein, uh, who's another LucasArts person. Uh, Annie Fox, and Modern Vintage Gamer. So that is the entire slate of the big stars coming to Flashback 2020. Uh, tickets are available now. And again, this is not just an Amiga event. This is featuring the 35th anniversary of the Amiga but um, it is, is going to cover all of the major retro systems. So make sure and check that out if you are around or if you've got some extra money kicking around in the old pocket and you want to fly over there. Coming up next, this is a brand new project on Kickstarter. This is something called the ATX2AT Smart Converter. Okay, So we've seen several uh, solutions to connect an ATX um, power supply to an Amiga. The Amiga, original Amiga power supplies are not getting any more reliable as time goes by. And although there are solutions in terms of recapping and things like that, if you want just a brand new solution, sort of fresh and, and you know, totally updated, this looks like it could be for you. Uh, this is a power supply adapter 
that not only will supply your Amiga with power, but it also has extra protections built in to um, protect your computer from electrical shock, you know, through power failure or something like that. So this, this Kickstarter comes to us from Lyon in France, and they have blown by their goal. Their original goal was only a thousand euros. They've raised almost 9,000 euros. And this is not too expensive. This is only uh, 39 euros. It comes with a converter and a cable and the OLED display. So you can actually monitor the voltage coming in to your power supply. Super, super cool. Um, so, uh, and this thing looks like it's small enough to possibly be uh, internally um, mounted. And again, this is not the actual power supply itself. You'd still be using an old AT or ATX power supply. But um, this is this is sort of a, a mediator between that and your retro computer of choice, so you can um, you can monitor the power and make sure that it's getting the correct voltage. Super super cool. Super super cool. All right, moving right along, uh, we are going to head on up to our next news story. This comes to us from AmigaWorld.net. And there are some new A1200 badges in town. Um, this comes to us, uh, again, from AmigaWorld.net, but these are actually found at Amiga Kit. Uh, if you are hankering for a new A1200 badge, uh, these are, you know, um, case badges are have been around for a while. Um, and uh, but there are, these are some new new designs, some new styles. So uh, if these appeal to you, you can check them out over at Amiga Kit. You can, uh, they are, let's see how much they cost. Uh, very reasonable, uh, only two pounds per. So you can get a couple and rotate them through. Um, it's uh, sort of like the old 360 faceplates, you know? Uh, so, um, yeah, A1200 case badges. All right, um, we've got a new Flickr fixer in town. This is an open source flicker fixer for the Amiga 500 and 2000. Um, this is uh, developed by a guy named Nick Lace K. Strom, and I have no idea how you actually pronounce that, but I've got a link to his GitHub page here. And um, this basically, uh, the advantage to this, this flicker fixer is that it will mount internally into your uh, your Amiga 500. There are uh, many uh, flicker fixers available from a wide variety of companies, but if you are somebody that is really crazy about keeping that clean look of just having the thing sitting on your desk, um, you know, this might be worth checking out. Um, doesn't look like uh, there are any um, any prices. I don't know if this is something that is an open source project or what, but it uh, basically it connects the pins on the Denise chip to a DE10 Lite FPGA development board, which I believe is that sounds like something that's in a mister, but I don't know. I'm, maybe maybe not. Um, but anyway, uh, make sure you check that out. Again, these are all on the show notes that are pasted to the uh, to the bottom of, of this podcast, so you can, you can check out the show notes either on YouTube or on the audio uh, version. Okay, speaking of FPGA development in the Amiga world, and uh, Mike's lab notes, Mike-Sterling.com, he is developing an FPGA-based Amiga 500 accelerator. So, of course, the most famous of these accelerators in the current day are the Vampire Boards. Uh, the Vampire Boards uh, add all sorts of wacky things to your Amiga, but if you are in the market for perhaps a lower cost uh, accelerator um, that is, uh, that is you know, more, more plain Jane, if, if all you're into is just the speed, uh, looks like uh, you can bump up the processor in your 500 to 020, which is quite, quite a bump, quite a bump. Uh, and there is some video footage here of the uh, the 500 with the accelerator running Frontier, which is a good benchmark to use in terms of performance. So uh, always exciting for me to hear about these these new FPGA-based solutions. So make sure you check that out if that's interesting to you. 
In the game world, there is a new shmup in town uh, for the Amiga. Normally we don't cover games in development, but since this one has a playable demo, I thought I'd mention it. Uh, this is a horizontally scrolling shoot-em-up uh, called en Envia. Envia. Uh, according to the developers, it features six levels, special weapons, and three, count them, three layers of parallax scrolling. Uh, and so um, this looks pretty good. Um, it runs on uh, OCS ECS, uh, so which is always a good thing. And um, you know, this is it, it. Basically, is your it, it, it looks a lot like your standard R-type shooter, although it looks like that the uh, the power-up system is, is not an R-type based power-up system. But um, you know, it doesn't look like it's too fast, and it doesn't look like it's too hard. So that's those are both points in its favor for me. And uh, so. Anyway, I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about Envia as it comes, uh, comes along in development. On eBay this week, something very interesting popped up. An ultra-rare Amiga development system. According to the auction, only one... Uh, this is, this, there's only five that are known to exist. Uh, this is used and untested, so you're really taking a gamble here. Um, but this is a, a development system, and as, of course, as we know, the development systems that um, that were given out by manufacturing are not beautiful. They're basically black boxes. And, you know, the, remember the uh, the Odyssey is the famous brown box. I guess the Amiga is the black box development system. Um, this is certainly something only for the completist out there, um, because uh, this this machine. Even in its black box state, it looks pretty rough. Looks like it's been patched up with some electrical tape. There's doodads hanging out the back of it. Um, it would be very interesting to know the history of this particular machine, and I think this guy would probably uh, be able to command a greater price if he could if he could prove the pedigree, as it set, as they say, uh, of this machine, and say, well, this this went through these guys' hands and it was used to create this game. Um, but as it is, he is uh, he is uh, auctioning this thing, starting bid at fifteen thousand dollars. Four hours left on this bad boy, uh, and the the seller is currently also away until the end of the month. So I guess he's just putting this out there to see if there's any early takers. My guess is that the price of this thing is going to come way down um, because I just don't I don't see somebody paying fifteen fifteen grand for this thing. Um, this is shipping from uh, Middleton, Nova Scotia, Canada. Interesting, interesting. So anyway, if you just search for Amiga Development System on eBay, you can uh, hit, the, hit the watch button and see, see what transpires with this machine. All right, another new game coming out here. This is The Curse of Robinstein. Um, this is a, uh, a newly released boxed game. Uh, that it comes in a collector's edition. This looks pretty good. Um, this is a side-scrolling affair, I believe. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, it's not. Uh, this is a adventure game. I was confusing this with a C64 thing I was looking at earlier. Um, and uh, looks like it's a, it's a good, solid title. Full-color graphics. Um, this is a graphical, text-based adventure game. Uh, and... Um, you know, this, these are the, you're, you're either for them or against them. There's no middle ground. Um, we covered, what was it? Um, it wasn't, not always oh, Severed Heads, uh, you know, the, the text, text adventure game on our Halloween episode. And this is definitely a step above that because it does offer um, lots of graphics with the, on, on the top half of the screen. And, you know, some people really get into these. Uh, these uh, I think they're called, like, text... Oh, there's a there's a fancy word for like text adventure game that people are using now, something like visual novel or something like that. But anyway, um, this is available for 25 euros. Uh, comes with uh, your your disc, the box, a micro SD card, which is interesting, stickers, and a poster. So um, yeah, check that out. That's over at polyplay.xyz, which is a new store to me. And finally this week, tons of Amiga news this week. If you are into um, creating music on your Amiga, this guy, his name is Debug Live. He is going to take you through the entire process 
of working with a sampler, uh, working with various uh, um, you know music construction tools. Uh, he's got all kinds of different doodads hanging out of the back. You know, you got the MIDI port and all that stuff out there. And he actually talks about how back in the day he used to sample records for play on the Amiga because, as we all know, that was the real strength of the Amiga sound chip was its ability to, to do sample-based music. So, really, I have not had a chance to watch this yet, but I do want to check it out. It's exquisitely filmed. This guy has some major league cameras um, and it looks great. It looks great. So anyway, this is uh, the name of this video is Amiga Samplers Budget Dance Music in 1990. Check it out. All right, uh, we are not going to do an Amiga um, EverythingAmiga.com site update this week. I did briefly glance at uh, what Dreamcatch has been up to, and it is a big Rocky Horror um, article, and. I don't want to do that without Aaron. Aaron is a huge Rocky Horror guy. He loves it. And uh, I, you know, I'll let him cover that next week because uh, I always tell people the holy trinity of things that I thought were cool in high school that I think are lame now. Kevin Smith, Nirvana, Rocky Horror. Sorry, no longer a fan. Anyway, that was really loud. I apologize. I've actually taken... Quite a bit of notes on the old Dune, uh, Dune game this week. So we're going to dive right into it. Okay, let's talk about Dune 2. Okay, so Dune 2 was brought to us by none other than the boss man, storied member of the Amigos Game Selection Committee, Paul Harrington, suggested this one, and it was voted upon by the illustrious members of the Amiga Game Selection Committee. Um... Let's talk a little bit about Dune, since it has been a couple years since we uh, discussed Dune 1. Just a little bit of background about the series. Uh, this is based on a novel by Frank Herbert that was released in 1965. What a lot of people don't know is that this originally appeared in serial form, uh, which is crazy to me because Dune is not a short book. Dune is 412 pages long. And uh, according to the wiki, it was published as two separate serials in Analog Magazine. That means that in each serial, in each one of these issues of Analog, there were 200 pages devoted to Dune, which is wacky to think about. I know that in the 1800s, this was a very popular way of publishing novels, you know, in serial form. That's a, a lot of Dickens novels were published that this way, but I wasn't aware that this was still going on up through the 60s, but apparently... It was. Uh, this was published in novel form uh, after the fact by Chilton. Uh, this tickled me because uh, at first I was like, boy, Chilton, could that be the same company? And yes, it is. The same company that produces these really thick, in-depth auto repair guides uh, also published this book. Um, this might have been, you know, back in the 60s, maybe Chilton had, had, had a broader base. But these days, and especially when I was growing up, I remember uh, when I got my first car, a 1982 Volvo, and something would break on it. That would be the first thing that I would, um, I would dip into. Actually, that's a lie. The first thing I would dip into would be asking my father. And then he would hand me the book and he'd say, figure it out. Then I would look through the book, not be able to figure it out, and then he would fix it for me. That's the way it goes. Um, anyway, uh, Dune was published. Uh, there are six different books in the Dune series. Um, the last of which was Chapter House Dune in 1985. So this series uh, spans 20 years of uh, Frank Herbert's life. Uh, and Dune is recognized as the best-selling sci-fi novel of all time, which I wasn't aware of, but when I thought about it, I couldn't think of any sci-fi novels that were bigger than Dune. Um, there, I mean, what do you, there's, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide, there's the Asimov books. I guess I, I was a little surprised that it wasn't one of the Asimov books. But anyway, um, Dune certainly ranks up there, um, you know, in, in the upper echelons of, of sci-fi literature. Uh, I remember reading Dune um, in around 2022. 10 or 2011, I was working as a substitute teacher. And if you're a substitute teacher in high school, you basically roll in, you go to the classroom, 
there is usually some sort of assignment that the students already are working on and you're just there as a babysitter. So I had a lot of downtime, a lot of time for reading. So I would just check out these huge tomes from the library and, and just read all day. And that's, that's how I read Dune. I, I distinctly remember I was a long-term sub in a health class uh, reading Dune. And it was a good way to pass the time. Uh, it's a good read. Um, it is definitely light on the sci-fi elements. It doesn't really go too far into like technology use and stuff like that. But what makes Dune special, at least to me, is that it really focuses on a lot of the uh, geopolitical uh, stuff uh, that would follow in a in a future world you know you've got different corporations and different governments vying for power and of course you also have this is this is the classic trope of the you know the lone hero out to to to, to save the world and all that stuff so there's there's a little bit of everything in here but it it reminds me of an interview that i read once with george R. R. martin where he was talking about how Game of Thrones is different than Lord of the Rings. And he said, well, you know, Lord of the Rings is basically the story of people, but, you know, what's Aragorn's tax policy once he becomes king of Gondor? And this is, this is the type of novel that delves into that, that sort of thing. Um, it's worth noting that after Frank uh, passed away, his son Brian, along with another author, published two more novels uh, that were based on his father's notes, um, and uh, this is not unlike another, you know, it's not unlike what Christopher Tolkien has done with, uh, with J.R.R. Tolkien's notes, uh, producing the Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, etc. So those are also out there, though the jury is out on whether they are quality, as quality as the original Dune series. And if you are curious about getting into Dune, um, I've, this is one of these series, if you, if you read reviews online, the consensus is, is that, uh, that the start is, the strongest books are earlier on in the saga and they get, they get sort of weaker as they go along. Um, but of course, read for yourself if you're at all interested. I'm sure that all of these are worth reading on some level. Uh, there have been tons of media adaptations of Dune. Uh, I guess most infamous is the, uh, 1984 David Lynch film which uh, was seen as a, a flop. Uh, David Lynch was not uh, happy with the final cut. He was not happy with the amount of artistic direction he was given. Um, and uh, so, but there are some people that really like that film. Uh, I have not seen it myself, um, but uh, there, it, it's, it's definitely one of those movies that has stood the test of time, though not at, initially at the box office. Uh, in 2000, there was a Sci-Fi Channel miniseries uh, on the original, uh, and then in 2003, there was uh, another miniseries based on the later works by, by Frank Herbert's son, you know, based on Frank's notes. Um, in the real world, uh, the names of Dune locations are names of things like uh, sort of like topographical features on Saturn's moon Titan. So uh, the Dune novels will be famous for the rest of recorded history because of this, which is, which is pretty cool. And as timely as today's headlines, as Aaron would say, uh, there is a new Dune film currently in development that's going to be released at the end of this year, the end of 2020, starring... Den or I don't actually, I didn't write this down. It's either starring or directed by, because I have no idea who this guy is, Dennis Villanueva. I'm going to guess that he's the director release date for this is in December 18th, 2020. So maybe this will be the third time will be the charm and we'll finally get a Dune for the ages on the screen. All right. So the game, let's talk about Dune 2, the game. The full title of Dune 2 is Dune 2, the battle for Araxis. Arrakis, or in the United States, this was released as Dune 2, the building of a dynasty. And this will come into play later on when we talk about the various uh, ports of this game. Um, but for, I imagine, most of the people that played this were playing it in Europe. And uh, it was known, on the Amiga at least, and it was known as the Battle for Arrakis. And Arrakis is the dune planet. Uh, it is the, the, the desert planet where the spice is harvested. Um, dune is actually the nickname of Arrakis. So there you go. Um, so what is, why are all these people, why do they care about this planet? Well, the, there's a resource on this planet called Melange, perhaps Melange, 
but I think it's melange. And it's, uh, but the nickname of this stuff is Spice, okay? Uh, this is a drug that enhances one's mental abilities. Um, it's, uh, it aids in basically all aspects of life because it allows humans to make calculations that they normally wouldn't. And so, for example, space travel is only possible if your pilots and your navigators are using this spice. So it's a very, very valuable resource. And so that's why so many different um, governments are vying for control over this planet. You've also got on this planet the deadly sandworms. And these are kind of these uh, crazy dragon-looking things that just sort of emerge out of the sand. And, of course, they devour people and buildings and things. But they also love spice. And so, and it talks about in the book, it talks about the cinnamon breath of the sandworm and stuff like that. So, um, kind of, uh, that's that's sort of the, the unknown crazy thing that goes down on Dune. So, this game was released in 1993 by Virgin Games. Uh, Virgin Games also owned the development studio, which was Westwood Studios. Westwood Studios came out of Las Vegas, and the two guys behind this title were Aaron Powell and Joe Bostick. Uh, Aaron Powell also worked on Eye of the Beholder 1 and 2 and Legend of Kyrandia. So, Eye of the Beholder as a the, uh, the sort of like first person dungeon crawler that is the bane of my existence, quite possibly the worst kind of game that's ever been developed, the uh, frame by frame uh, dungeon crawler, and Legend of Kyrandia, which is a point and click adventure, and this looks pretty good. You know, uh, it looks very similar to what you might see coming out of uh, Lucas Arts or uh, Delphine or something like that at this at this time period. Um, so uh, Joe Bostic, the other kind of co-developer of this game went on to make Command and Conquer. And of course, Command and Conquer, one of the most famous real-time strategy games of all time. This was the genesis of that. Uh, Command and Conquer has sold over 10 million copies worldwide. So it's one of the best-selling video games of all time. And um, and it was really the, the driving force behind uh, Westwood Studios' acquisition by EA in 1998. At the time that they were acquired, uh, it's estimated that five to six percent of the entire PC gaming market was Westwood Studios, aka the Command and Conquer games. So um, Joe went on to bigger and better things, and this is the the, the root of all of that. Uh, Westwood Studios did do other types of games uh, back in the eighties, in the in the, around eighty eight or so. They were heavily involved in the edutainment industry. Uh, they did Donald's Alphabet Chase. Uh, Goofy's Adventure Railroad or something like that. Uh, so they, they did a bunch of those games and then they were also big into the strategy and simulation games. They did a bunch of Battletech games and things like that too. So that's a little history about Westwood Studios. Uh, Dune 2 is a uh, OCS ECS game. So this would work all the way back on the, on the older machines. And it is a one player endeavor. Uh, there is no two player uh, option in this game. So um, I guess we should start out by talking about what Dune 2 is not. Uh, Dune 2 is not anything like Dune 1. Uh, Dune 1 was a quite an interesting game. Um, it is a uh, graphic adventure, kind of text-based, dialogue tree-based graphic adventure, um, first person, um, combined with some early forms of like troop management and um, boy, it's a weird thing that you have to do in that game. You're, you're basically controlling the harvesting of spice and the, the controlling of troops, but it is, it is nowhere near the same sort of control that you have in this game. It's, it's a totally different thing. And it was almost like a mini game that was featured along with the main adventure, which was this, this dialogue based graphic adventure where you're trying to, to uncover the secrets of Dune and, and build a team to overthrow the government and things like that. Um, so Dune 2 is a straight up real time strategy game. What is a real time strategy game? Well, I'll try and explain it the best I can if you are unfamiliar with this genre. Um, Real-time strategy differs from traditional strategy games, turn-based strategy, because everything is happening in real time. So both players uh, or you and the computer are both making movements with your units 
at exactly the same moment. So you uh, reaction time becomes critical versus in a turn-based strategy game, you have plenty of time to plan your moves and then you basically hit the button and then things work out on their own. In this game, not only do you have to plan your strategy, but you actually have to enact the strategy yourself. Uh, this is why real-time strategy is such a popular genre because it not only it not only um, you know demands a a mind that can conceptualize a grand strategy, but you also have to uh, you also have to make that strategy real in real time with your reflexes. You know you have to be super super quick on the mouse, quick on the keyboard, and uh, and this game is uh, by all accounts the first modern real-time strategy game. Um, so, uh, you know, here's a couple of the first. These are some of the things that Dune 2 did first. Uh, and I got this, uh, from, from online. Um, so your the results may vary, uh, in terms of if there was some really obscure game that did some of this stuff first. But by and large, I think that it's fair to say that this was the first popular game that, uh, offered you, uh, you know, branching pathways after you complete a mission. It gives you a world map and you can choose where you go next. Uh, it's the first game that w- you have to gather resources in order to build. Um, it's the first game with a tech tree where you build a building, and then that building can create another building, and that building can create another unit, and it just keeps on going and going and going with these branching kind of construction options. And uh, according to, to this list that I found, it's also the first where you could actually deploy mobile units that were buildings. So, um, you know, I know that in later games like StarCraft, that's a big deal where you have your, your, your base and you can actually make your base move around the map. So, anyway, lots of firsts for Dune 2. Um, and it is, it is very highly regarded in terms of, uh, in terms of real-time strategy fans. Um, so, in this game, uh, your mission types are pretty simple. Uh, you in the early missions, all you have to do is earn a certain number of credits. How do you earn credits? You go out, you construct a um, you construct a spice resource uh, extraction plant, and then you construct a, 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 a some sort of a vehicle that will go out and harvest the spice. They bring the spice back in. The spice turns into credits. When you get enough credits, the scenario ends, and you move on to the next the next one. Um, the other objective in this game is you have to destroy all the enemies. So at the beginning of a scenario, you will see a very small section of the map. They call this the old fog of war. And as you uh, send various scouts and other units out into the world uh, to either look for spice or to do some reconnaissance, uh, more and more of the map on the mini-map and also the main map is, is made available to you and you can see where your units are, you can see where the enemy units are, and you can see where the spice is. So, um, you know, a, a elementary strategy in this game would be to immediately send out some small units to figure out where the enemy is while they're doing that, you're sending out a uh, resource extraction team to gather the spice. Then at the same time, you're building new units that will do things like give you radar. Uh, you're building out new infantry units, new heavy units to counteract the enemy when the enemy comes to attack you. Conversely, you can go on the offensive, build a whole bunch of units, and go take down the enemy. So that's that's basically almost, I'd say that's 80% of all real-time strategy games at the macro or at the macro level, that's what you're trying to do. So um, you get to choose from three different houses in this game. You've got House Harkonnen, House Atreides, and House Ordos. Okay. Now, unlike later strategy games like StarCraft, all three of these houses pretty much play the same. Um, the difference is that when you get to the top of the tech tree, you can construct a special offensive weapon, okay? So House Harkonnen can give you uh, a long-range missile called the Death Hand. Uh, House Atreides gives you uh, a um, computer-controlled infantry unit called Freeman, and they will go and wreak havoc upon the enemy. And then House Ordos gives you a saboteur, 
And then he probably does just what he says. He sneaks into an enemy base and blows it up or something like that. So that are, those are the three, um, the three houses you can choose from. And as you complete scenarios, more and more of the map fills in in your color until eventually you win. And at the end of the game, there's a shortcut scene where you depose the emperor, the current emperor. The emperor goes to jail, and then the credits roll. It's not really much of an end uh, of an ending, but I mean, there's... What games really have a great ending? Not very many. So anyway, that's what happens at the end. And I, I did not get to the end. Um, so what makes... Oh, and I forgot about the sandworms. You can't forget about the sandworms. So the sandworms are sort of, as far as I can tell, they are random events that happen in a sandworm. Well, if you are in a sandworm area, which they usually hide out, you know, in like these sort of rocky alcoves, they will jump up and they can swallow whole units. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of a cool thing to see. So uh, if nothing else, if you if you never play this, I suggest you you check out some footage because the, the game is, is a really good looking game. Um, the graphics, although they are small uh, because you've got to see a lot on the map, they, they're, they're very detailed and uh, and the game, it, it's a good looking game for sure, for sure. Um, so anyway, um, that is the game in a nutshell. So what did I like about this? Um, this is probably the first Amiga game that I've played that is a game in a genre that still exists to this day that feels relatively modern. Uh, I could jump right in being familiar with things like Warcraft and Starcraft and immediately know what was going on. Um, even in its earliest days, they kind of perfected the... Um, the uh, like build screens and things like that. Everything was easy to figure out. They didn't do the thing with Settlers where they made everything an icon. Like there's actual words, which, oh my gosh, I was so fearing that this would be just like Settlers and I would be frustrated and it would be awful. So I'm so glad that they, they put words like attack, move, build, um, because uh, I could jump right in. The, the only thing that sort of gave me pause and the thing that's different about this game than any other RTS I've ever played is that you can't just build right away. Well, you can, but it's not a good idea. First of all, uh, you can't build anywhere. You can only build on rock. You can't build on sand. That makes sense. Um, but before you build on the rock, you actually have to build the concrete foundations for your buildings. And each building has a different size foundation. And this is one of the main problems that I had with this game is it just seemed useless. Like, I, I hated wasting time building these foundations and then I'd forget how big of a foundation I need to build so I'd have to go back in through the menu and look it up again. And um, and so I, I thought that was a little bit annoying. Um, but, you know, obviously most players did too because that sort of mechanic uh, went away after this game. Um, but anyway, once you get past that, you build a structure and that structure can produce a particular unit or it can produce a different kind of structure. Um, as you go through, you know, as you build units, your credits go down. As you harvest more spice, your credits go up. So it's 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 you can't spend too fast, or you you'll you'll run out of credits. Um, you've got to balance your uh, offensive production with your uh, with your other, you know, with your research and things like that. And this is just another thing. It's you know, it's common to all real time strategy games. Um, your uh, your facilities have a damage indicator and so you you can see you know how close your facilities are to being destroyed then you just hit repair when they start to get damaged if you try and build a facility without building the concrete slab first it will arrive damaged and you don't want that so always make sure you build your uh, your concrete slabs um the keyboard shortcuts on this game were very intuitive um like I, I love keyboard shortcuts. I, I use them all the time whenever I'm doing anything. And they're all mapped to the first word of the uh, of, of the command. So attack A. You hit A. You hit the mouse button. You click on the thing you want to attack. It attacks it. Very, very easy. Very, very easy. Now, one thing that this game lacks is any kind of uh, right-click uh, macro where it would be great if you could assign um, a certain um, maneuver to right-click. And what would be even better if it were, is if it was just context sensitive. So it would know that if you click on an enemy, it means that you want to attack that enemy. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later on. Um, and uh, this is, uh, some people would call this a pro, some people would call it a con, but there are, there's only one resource to mine in this game. It's just spice. 
So, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about, you know, am I sending enough people to gather this versus this? Everything is only one, one spice. And of course, I think in StarCraft, I think there's two or three uh, resources to mine. So, uh, and of course, in Age of Empires and all these types of games, there's, there's always different resources. But uh, I call that a pro because as someone with a limited amount of time to play this game, I can jump right in and understand the, the, the game with one resource pretty well. This game does have some things that I didn't like. Uh, the first one is that there is absolutely no background music whatsoever. There is this weird drone that plays in the back, just kind of a Ooh. I guess it's atmospheric, but I found it annoying. Um, I would have loved to have uh, any kind of music playing in the background on this. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no real advantage, uh, at least in the early game, to picking the different houses. Uh, I would have liked to have seen sort of, um, you know, and again, the, the thing about StarCraft, how you've got the uh, the Zerg, they're all about building low-cost swarms of enemies and rushing the enemy, uh, versus you've got, you know, the, the, the more human guys, which is a more balanced approach, and then you've got like the Protoss, and they're a different thing. In this game, all three houses are, all do the same thing. So that's a con. And of course, building on the concrete slabs, that's no good. And this game really would have benefited from a two-player null modem type connection. Um, it would have made the game infinitely more replayable if you could team up against another person. Um, of course, this is well before the internet became established. Um, and I don't know what kind of technical challenges might have come from having a null modem um, you know, connection if there was just too much action going on the screen or what. But anyway, that would have been nice. All right. So anyway, on the whole, this is a fantastic game. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, this game did get some ports. Uh, it was ported to DOS. Um, actually, I think that the DOS and Amiga versions arrive pretty much simultaneously. Uh, the DOS version adds background music, which is great. Um, it adds, when you talk to your advisor, it adds some, some background colors there. It's a weird thing for the Amiga devs to, to take out, because they could have easily done that. But other than that, I mean, to me, I tried to go back and forth, and I couldn't really tell any difference in the graphics. I'm sure that there is some minor graphical detail, and I'm sure the PC version does look slightly better. But on the whole, this is nowhere near... Uh, looking as different as, say, the PC port of Syndicate versus the Amiga port. These are much, much more similar. Uh, this port, this was also ported to the Acorn Archimedes, believe it or not. And I watched some footage of this being played on the Archimedes. And again, it looks very similar, but there is background music on the Archimedes port, uh, and it is great. So again, you know, it just, it kills me that so many Amiga games don't have background music. It just kills me. And finally, two years after this game was released, um, the Mega Drive version came out. And the Mega Drive version is the best version, okay? Uh, it's the best version because they've replaced the, um, the, the, the sort of the, the, the keyboard commands with a context-sensitive cursor, okay? So you can actually maneuver through these zones, and when you click on something, it does what you want it to do. You know, if you click build and you push the thing, it, it will build it. If you go to the, um, uh, if you go to, if you click on an enemy, it will assume that you want to, you, you want to kill that enemy. Uh, the music is fantastic. Of course, the Genesis known for its, its great music. Um, the graphics are more colorful. They were completely redrawn for the Genesis version. Um, now, there are a couple downsides. The, the tech tree has been um, simplified in some ways. Uh, there aren't quite as many options on the tech tree, and there is no longer a... Um, the level progression is linear. There's no clicking on different areas of the map. Now, you could say that's a pro because it doesn't matter on the Amiga version what order you do the missions in. It does them all anyway, but... For me, that's definitely a con, because I like to have options. You know, if I get frustrated with one mission, I like to be able to go to another mission and play it. So that's a con for me. But, you know, you wouldn't think that a console, this would be a good console port, because it is cursor-based. But after watching watching people play it and hearing people talk about it, uh, you owe it to yourself to check this out if you're a fan of Dune 2. Uh, it's supposedly very, very good. So very, very surprising. Um... This thing reviewed great. 
Uh, it reviewed in the high 80s or 90s. Uh, Amiga Action gave it an 88. Amiga Format gave it a 90. CU Amiga gave it an 85. And The One gave it a 90. So very, very high marks from the journalistic community. And we got tons of uh, user reviews this week uh, for Dune 2 over on the Discord. Just a reminder, if you are a Patreon supporter, uh, you get access to our Discord server and you can post reviews as well as chat with us about any old thing you like. And uh, Jason Warns writes, Great graphics and sound with an interface that formed the basis for future designs in the genre. The minimap, resource gathering, and construction dependencies are still used in RTSs today. This was the game that got me hooked on the RTS genre. It's only failing, lack of background music. 9 out of 10. Lobsterminator writes, One of the all-time greats and the originator of the modern style RTS. I had this on PC back in the day, but I played the Amiga version last year. It's an excellent port that plays just as well as the DOS version, something that was sadly getting rarer and rarer in 1993. Compared to later RTS games, it lacks some quality of life features like the ability to select multiple units by drawing a box, but for the most part, it holds up perfectly. And that is one thing that I forgot to mention in my cons. I can't believe I forgot to mention that because that is the biggest con of all, is that uh, you cannot select multiple units in this game. Or, or if you can, I never figured out how. In later RTS games, you draw that box around them and they all get selected. So yeah, that was the... I, I can't believe I forgot to write that down. That was the biggest problem I had with this game because it just makes the whole game seem so slow and so overly clicky. Chris Folds writes... A tricky one to review is the genre has advanced so much, making it hard to play. It's a true classic that brought the genre on by a massive amount, and it holds up against its more respected PC version. For 1993, I give this a solid 9 out of 10. However, as a fan of retro games, would I play it today on any system? Nope. Unfortunately, it suffers by modern standards. It's not a timeless classic, but for 93, you won't get any better. Rushi writes... This game was an amazing landmark in game design, but the rapid evolution of the genre quickly left it in the dust. If you played it at the time, you no doubt would have said it was a 10 out of 10 perfect title, but if you missed out, then you may wonder what all the fuss was about. The Amiga port fares surprisingly well, suffering from the expected downgrades in graphic and audio quality, along with the loss of much of the voice work, but it retains the playability of the PC original. It lacks many quality-of-life features of its successors, and the unrefined nature of it will undoubtedly be off-putting to anyone playing it for the first time within the last 25 years. To quote famed American educator Henry Jones Jr., it belongs in a museum. Graham Vebke writes, This game is historically important to the RTS genre and is still enjoyed by many players to this day. It's a game that doesn't sit well with me personally, and that is why I'm avoiding submitting a review at this time to give the game the respect it deserves without my biases. I've previously experienced this game on the Mega Drive, too, and it was a genre-divining game for consoles as well. However, it does lack a few things we take for granted now, like multi-unit selection, and for people discovering this game late after already experiencing games like Age of Empires 2 or Total Annihilation will be ultimately frustrated by this that this concept is missing and reflection writes this is the game that defined the rts genre and in essence little has changed since other than improvements to graphics and ui i've always preferred the amiga version to the pc version the larger color choice allowed a more harmonious palette the lower resolution meant less detail but this does not hamper gameplay the sample-based music is easier on my ears than the cheap Casio keyboard sounds of the general MIDI sound cards of the day. The Amiga version also allowed simultaneous music and sound effects. He must have been playing a different version of this game than I played. The more extensive voice acting of the PC version would have been welcome. I suppose retaining compatibility with older hardware was never much of a priority on the PC as other platforms since the size of the user base meant low-end users could safely be ignored. Dune 2 is still playable today, and having to consider your base layout carefully brings another aspect lost in later RTS games. It's not as close to perfection as Civilization or The Settlers, though. It has bugs, replayability is limited, adding null modem support would have helped, and the interface has held up less well. But it's a solid 9 out of 10. Level Lord writes, 
Araxis, the devil planet known as Dune. When Dune, came, when Dune 2 came out, it blew my mind as no other strategy game was like it, and as an avid strategy gamer, I spent the whole summer beating the game and completing the campaigns for all three houses over and over again. After 27 years, Dune 2 is still a great game. Sure, the mechanics are ancient, but being a first true RTS which runs on Amiga, it was among all my all-time favorite games. Graphics and animations are beautiful, while sound is lacking compared to the MS-DOS version. I have seen it on my best mate's 386DX, and while it was running faster and had music, I despised ugly and pixelated MS-DOS graphics. I can give it no less than 10 out of 10. Zorglub writes, Dune 2, The Battle for Araxis Review. I love this game and still do. 9 out of 10 for me because even the copy protection is in line with Frank Herbert's sci-fi novels. Oh, and that what uh, I should probably mention that breaking away from Zorglub's review, the copy protection asks you, or it, it accuses you of spying for House Ordos, and you have to prove your innocence that you are not a, uh, a, a two-faced liar spy by entering some stuff from the from the instruction book. Uh, anyway, love the book, love the movie, and was engulfed in the game back then. I'm really looking forward to the movie remake. I suspect I will return to the game from time to time. Thank you guys so much for submitting those reviews, and thank you for submitting all of the news links this week. We have a new channel on the Discord where you can submit uh, Amiga news links for, uh, for us to talk about on the show, and you guys really came through with some great stories, so I really appreciate that. All right, uh, we should take a second to uh, thank all of the fine folks that make Amigos possible. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank our um, supporters on Twitch. So if you subscribe to the channel on Twitch, you can do that right now. If you have Amazon Prime, you can go to twitch.tv slash Amigos Retro Gaming and you can um, subscribe to our channel for free and that helps us. Um, Brother Bill, Tapes from the Crypt, Mohawk Mall, Peeplo, Edvin Helland, Chris Folds, Math Dufort, Frodo NL, Rushi MSX, Retro Jerry, Macintosh Librarian, Jost80, G Vebke, Anguish Hauteur, GoToGoSub, Silverstreak72, and Wing Chun Wolf. Thank you so much for supporting us on Twitch. That is real, real cool of you to do. And, of course, we should talk about the last week's Patreon song challenge. Last week's Patreon song was the immortal classic by Bill Conti, Gonna Fly Now, otherwise known as the theme from Rocky. Uh, so several people uh, were able to guess this tune and email me. Uh, got Terry Howard, first out of the gate, Gary Heather, Andy Craig, Jason Warns, and Eric Nelson. Eric, I didn't even have to give you a hint this time. You're doing great. So, uh, thank you guys so much for, uh, for guessing that correctly. It makes me feel good that my artistic renditions are uh, appreciated. <clears throat> and uh, this week, if you know this week's Patreon support uh, song, you can email me at john at amigospodcast.com, uh, and I will read your name aloud as one of the winners for next week. So, here we go. Daniel Williams, Bernard Lucas, Jerry Dennington, Zorglub, Iron Wolf, Young Ben Goodnudson, Terry Howard, Reflection, Simon Ledge, Cap'n Crispy, Kilobytes, and Caffeine, Mike W. Decker, Threepwood, Gary Heather, Freelunch, Kate Fox, David Pickford, Cameron Armstrong, Andy Jones, Lobster, Minade, a 10 minute Amiga retrocast, Bernard Quinn, Retro Man Cave, Tim Drew, Simon Rose, Joseph Harrison, Kyle Hedder, Rob O'Hara, Howard Nibs, Matthew Laramore, Andy Craig, Jean Zoe, Colin 419, Bachbit, Roland Burke, Andrew Monks to the Zoe, Joe the Zombie, 
John Cook, Leif Kazan, Alan Kebab, Checo Tate, Level Lords, John Marshall, Matt, Perron, Ricky DeRosha, Creep and Dead Boy, Figgy CT, The Slow Norris, Stefan Sorgord, Mortensen, Edmund Helen, Blendo 75, Christopher Hassel, Ravi Abbott, Chris Foles. Dreamcatcher, Lauren Giroux, uh, Graham Grebke, Lane Denson, Adam Batters, B. O'Brien's Retorant Vintage, Gary Hucker, C. Brian Jones, Paul Harrington, Duncan Styles, Tapes from the Crib, Josh Nat, Adam Bradley, Jonas Rulo. THT, Eric Nelson, Kim Tommy, Humberstein, Daniel Bingston, Brutal Barracuda, Darren Coles, Jason Warns, Pixels Dawn, Pixels at Dawn, and Kjolbjorn Barman. And next week, folks, Aaron will be back. The world will be back in order. And it's PD week on Amigos, public domination. Uh, we're going to be playing two super great titles, including Super Dodge and Pingo. All right. I hope I didn't do too bad a job all on my lonesome. And I hope you enjoyed the show, and we will see you next week. Until then, adios.